Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. During the Great Depression and World War II, Frontier Nursing Service nurse midwives rode horseback up Kentucky's rugged hollows to deliver babies, treat the sick and injured day or night, winter or summer. Risking surprise encounters with desperate bootleggers, they answered the call, usually alone, with only what they could carry in their saddlebags. One young nurse had to reach deep into her soul for the courage to go on. By and by, she could not imagine her life anyplace else. The uh, historical novel is An Answering Flame, and the author, Carmen Margot Mowbray, will join us for the hour. We're going to talk about not one, but two books from Margot Mowbray. Havoc Red, Surviving the Alaska-Siberia Route, 1943, is the other book. Both uh, very interesting history. And I uh, just want to read this from author margomowbray.com. Uh, Margot writes from her home in northwestern Montana. Her newspaper career began at the age of 20 at one of Montana's oldest weeklies. For nearly two decades, she continued a fulfilling career of publishing award-winning community newspapers. After selling the enterprise, she began uh, researching stories that deserved a wider audience. Her four children were grown, which allowed time for research and writing, and uh, she paused just long enough to serve a term in Montana's state senate. Um and uh, interestingly, uh, she is a private pilot with over 1,200 left-seat hours, serves on a local hospital board. Uh, Margaret Mowbray, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. It's, uh, I'm just glad to be speaking with you. Uh, so first name Carmen, but you go by Margot, I understand. Right. Uh, for writing, I use the uh, pen name Margot. Okay. Um, and you split time between Montana and St. George, Utah, I understand. I do, I do. Years and years ago, uh, we fell in love with Southern Utah, as many people do, and I've been fortunate enough to uh, enjoy uh, spending my time in both beautiful places. I understand that uh, your husband was working at Trolley Square in Salt Lake City when you when you married. We yes, we actually I was raised in Redmond, Washington, and if your listeners are familiar with Wallace Stegner, they may know that he lived there in the teens where his father served lunches to the loggers out of a tent. And prior to our move to Montana, we did. We lived in Salt Lake City, and he worked on Trolley Square. Uh, it's good to have a connection to Utah, good to have a connection to Wallace Stegner. That's, uh, those are, you know, noble things. Um, uh, before we get into these the two books, very interesting books and some history that I had not been aware of, so I appreciated that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your, your career in newspapers. Um, overall, uh, newspapers are, you know, have been struggling. What about community newspapers? That's where you spent your career. Well, in 73 is when I began, uh, at, as you said, one of Montana's oldest newspapers. My job as a 20-year-old was reading obituaries, and I didn't think they were very interesting at first until I realized they were valley stories of the valley pioneers with, with fascinating histories. And so I started to engage in, in community news and uh, became a news correspondent for a Western Montana daily. But in 83, we bought our first newspaper. It was a weekly community newspaper and expanded our regional printing plant. And um, it was then that I just truly uh, fell in love with journalism and what it can bring to a community. Yeah, the, the community newspaper is an important institution in any community. Um, I, I, I think most people really... Uh, appreciate that. You've worked in uh, several different community newspapers. That's true. We had a chain of six community newspapers when we sold, and which actually uh, 
I regretted it at the time, but perhaps it was a good time because, as you pointed out, newspapers are are not, uh, they don't fill the same slot they used to to a community. I remember back in the day I grew up in eastern Utah, Vernal, the Vernal Express out there. I don't see this in community newspapers much anymore, but it would, you'd have uh, so-and-so visited so-and-so. It, it, was that, it was that local. We called it the chicken dinner news. Yeah. <laughs> and I, You typically had a, a local correspondent that you counted on to send in the, the material every uh, Monday morning, and it uh, recapped the events on the weekend, and right down to the color of the flowers on the checkered tablecloths. <laughs> As a young man, I kind of made fun of that, but, I, but boy, I'd, I'd love to read that again, you know? <laughs> I think we all miss it. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think the future of it? Do you think the future is okay, strong for community newspapers? Uh, the community, the, the newspaper industry as a whole is, is kind of suffering. Well, it is. It was uh, typically the papers were slow to make the transition to digital, and I'm afraid that's where we're all going. Uh, you and I probably enjoy holding a newspaper in our hand while we have our, our morning beverage, and um, I think those days are over. Um, I think digital is the way to go with obvious savings in resources and, and time and expense. So I think we need to get ready for that. Yeah, yeah, I, I do like holding the newspaper, but uh, I'm getting more used to, to reading it online. By the way, I pulled up the Daily Missoulian. That's where you started, right? Um, Correct. Uh, one headline, uh, April runoff, highest ever recorded in 121 years. And then I tooled over to the Prairie Star, which is a newspaper you, you had. Uh, Downs family wrapping up planting, looking ahead to fertilizing. Prairie Star, an agricultural paper, I guess. Yes, it's very large agricultural monthly. When we owned it, it served almost all of Montana, part of Wyoming, and part of Alberta. And it was um, a, more of a blue book. Ranchers and farmers depended on looking at it for, to evaluate the, the equipment that they had in their sheds and barns as much as anything else, but there was always a recipe in it. Always a recipe. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, let's uh, let me transition to the first uh, book here. You've written a couple of very interesting uh, books. Uh, the first I want to talk about is An Answering Flame, and the subtitle is Horseback Nurse in an Adverse uh, Land. Uh, this is uh, talking about the Frontier Nursing Service. Uh, how did you encounter this uh, this history? Well, my uh, Aunt Doris served in the Frontier Nursing Service during World War II, and she kept a journal <clears throat> pardon me, and brought it back to my mother, her stepsister, uh, several hundred pages of handwritten uh, notes on yellow legal sheets. And my mom realized how, how interesting this was and typed it all up. They found some pictures and printed it with very limited distribution. And that booklet sat on my shelf until we sold the publishing company, and I had time to uh, devote to some research. Uh, Doris's incredible stories just really needed to be told, and so my mother said, you need to make something more commercially appealing with them. So I reached out to the Frontier Nursing Service, and they were very cautious at first. I went to Kentucky to meet them, and I stayed in the actual big house that served as the founder, Mary Breckenridge's home, and clinic headquarters, and when the Frontier Nursing Service learned that I had a genuine desire to share their story through Doris's memoirs, they opened up their entire archives to me. They had told me that uh, PBS had just broadcast a documentary about the uh, area that was very uncomplimentary, and they were very careful of who got access to these materials. But I was able to spend a couple of weeks there two or three different times, and it was a 
real pleasure working with them and meeting the locals. And when I mentioned Doris's name, many people still remembered her and treated me very warmly. So tell me about the uh, the, the place and, and, and the time that's treated in your, in your novel. This is eastern Kentucky, I believe. It is. It's southeastern Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. And uh, what had happened was uh, Mary Breckenridge... Uh, had enlisted the British nurse midwives to come and train uh, her nurses. And during the war, of course, they were all called back to treat treat uh, their soldiers in England. And so in during this time, Mary Breckenridge ran an advertisement, and I've actually found the ad in an old paper, and if you don't mind, I'll read it. Yeah. Attention nurse graduates with a sense of adventure your own horse, your own dog, and a thousand miles of Kentucky mountains to serve. Living quarters and board at reasonable rates, six weeks paid vacation each year. Apply Frontier Nursing Service, Wendover, Kentucky. <laughs> wow. So uh, a spirit, so, spirit of adventure is what you'd need, for one thing. Well, absolutely. And my aunt responded, left her Michigan home and her family and her stable job at Petuskey. Petoskey Hospital and moved to Wendover and served for six and a half years there. So that's where the journal came from. So you get your horse, that's your transportation. You get a dog too. Why, why the dog? <laughs> I think the dog was more just for company. And okay. I, like I said in the book, they added a little more intellectual uh, ability on the trail than the horse had. Yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is winter, summer. Uh, for example, in the winter uh, the, the horse had to have a you know special steel shoes with ice nails to get get around. Exactly, because there were no roads. The uh, folks lived up these hollers, they call them, and the only way to access that was usually up the creek bottom. Hmm. So the the need was there of inadequate medical uh, uh, facilities and remote locations, I guess. Well, yes. Uh, a little bit of the backstory is that more Kentucky mothers were dying in childbirth than anywhere in the nation. And in 1925, founder Breckenridge established the first clinic in Kentucky's backcountry with the idea to bring modern health care to the underserved area. And she modeled her approach, like I said, on the British nurse midwives who made home visits throughout a pregnancy and the delivery of a baby at home. Well, like I said, no electricity, no phones, very few roads. Um, people were just scratching out a living on their land or working in a coal mine or a sawmill. And uh, Breckenridge began by building a home and headquarters, and then she would enlist each neighborhood to help raise six resident nursing centers reaching into these sprawling districts. And a team of nurses would be stationed there from where they would ride out on their district to visit homes. And in 1928, she managed to build a small hospital, which was she called it the palm of the hand with the resident clinics spreading out like fingers. And the, the book actually includes photos of these and, and several of the interiors of the homes. The most fascinating thing I, I learned, I think, was that uh, her organization managed to lower the maternal death rate to below the national average in spite of the challenges of delivering babies in those dark cabins by kerosene lamp and creek water. Um, one of the very interesting facts I discovered, if you have a moment, I'll read a brief footnote. Yeah, certainly. In 
At the end of their first 10,000 live births, this was 1925 to 1955, which of course gave a very broad sample, the Frontier Nursing Service lost 9.1 mothers due to delivery causes. Among white women in the U.S. during the same period, the average weight was 34 per 10,000. That's amazing. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah, another much more difficult circumstance here in Kentucky, I guess, this area. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, Mary Breckenridge sounds like a very extraordinary woman. Tell me a little bit more about her. Yes, there's a marvelous autobiography of hers called Wide Neighborhoods that I uh, used extensively. She understood the situation in these communities and how the people had their pride. And, of course, she expected payment for their services, but she obviously needed to be pretty open-minded about how payment would come. And it came in the form of <clears throat> of bartering, maybe <clears throat> uh, what they called hen eggs, uh, cane bottom chairs, uh, a load of pig manure. Uh, you know that would be useful for the garden. So she uh, realized that uh, these folks needed to retain their pride. And my aunt uh, had a story which ends up in the book. She delivers a baby out on district. And the husband wanted to send her back with a butchered turkey in payment, but she stopped him from killing it because she knew the horse would uh, spook at the smell of the blood. So she rode all the way back to the nursing center with what she called a feed sack full of angry feathers. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> she knew enough to not spook her horse. That's that's good. Um, so uh, this is uh, pretty extraordinary. Were, were there other such services in other places? Well, not that I know of, Tom. This one is still going, by the way. Um, it's now called Frontier Nursing University, and their graduates pledge to go all over the world focusing on medically underserved places. And uh, you, from time to time, you'll run into these Frontier Nursing Service-trained people uh, in the, in the most uh, out-of-the-way places. Yeah, this is really extraordinary and uh, yeah, a much-needed service. Mary Breckenridge uh, saw, saw a need. Um, I wonder, um, before we go to break here, you mentioned that uh, people were a little wary there. A, a PBS documentary had come out, which was uncomplimentary. What, what were the people, was this a general perception of Appalachia that they they didn't, didn't like? Well, like I said, they had their pride. And I think, uh, I have not seen the PBS uh, production. I, I guess I've avoided it. Um, I think there's a tendency to capitalize on some of the uh, backwoodsness of the people rather than look uh, into them and, and see their dignity. They were a very superstitious people. When the Frontier Nursing Service started treating them, uh, their, their, some of their treatments were as crude as an axe under the bed to cut the fever. Uh, they had fear of medicines they couldn't see, and they, of course, preferred their old folk remedies like uh, gunpowder mixed with water would revive a newborn, or a poultice of turpentine on the chest would relieve tuberculosis, things like that. And uh, the mountain people were very reluctant uh, towards vaccinations and things that these, they called them the fotched-on women, would bring. They, they would try every folk remedy first, meaning that their injury or illness was advanced by the time they got to these clinics, which, of course, challenged the nurses even more. So there's that... Uh, long-standing pride and dignity that uh, of self-reliance that uh, can work both for and against the people. 
What are these communities like uh, today? You went and visited a few of them. <laughs> They're not real different, although you do see satellite dishes on most of the homes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, it, yeah, coincidentally, my daughter and I made a trip there uh, fairly recently, and uh, she was pretty surprised. Um, I took her to the, uh, we landed in Lexington, and I took her to a second-hand store there just to get an idea of the, the demographics there. There were nice things, name-brand things and jewelry and all kinds of nice things. And then we went to uh, Harlan, Kentucky, uh, Harlan County, that's Hazard, uh, Kentucky, actually, and uh, I took her to a second-hand store there. <laughs> we saw bent wheels and rusty tire chains and, and tow bars and things that were absolutely needed, but certainly not, not luxuries. Yeah, it, it, interesting. I guess you know some of these traditions passed down, and the heritage, right? The the character of the people. Yes, exactly. Very strong character, and I, I go into a little bit of that history in the book. Uh, it basically it started before the Civil War, and uh, as you know, Kentucky tried to remain neutral uh, during the Civil War. That uh, people ended up with kin on both sides, and um, it it really did split Kentucky. And when the revenuers started snooping around the moonshine stills, trying to collect money for recon uh, reconstruction, it, it made the backcountry people very resentful uh, and oftentimes ended up with a gunshot. Uh, yeah, some, some violence there. And uh, these the nurses from Frontier Nursing Service, I guess they had to be on, on the lookout for the bootleggers? Well, they did, but Mary Breckenridge, was, was, her wisdom was, was such that we don't ask questions. If these people want to make more money turning their corn to liquid than feeding it to the cattle, uh, we're not going to ask questions. We're not going to get involved. And if we just simply tolerate this, that's their, those are their ways, they will protect us in the woods against these dangerous bootleggers. The bootleggers were the uh, ones that they feared. They were very desperately trying to fill orders and uh, were very jealous of their territories. The moonshiners were just simply like I said, trying to turn their corn into a more profitable product. Yeah, a differentiation there, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your Aunt Doris. Uh, sounds like quite the woman. I'm just going to quote you from the introduction of the book here. The book is An Answering Flame. The author is Margaret Mowbray. She's with us. We're going to be talking about another of her books as well, Havoc Red, Surviving the Alaska-Siberia Route 1943. This is from An Answering Flame. Um Let's see, you say, once you got to know Doris, she seemed a lot taller than five foot one inch. She had an enormous presence, something that Mrs. Breckenridge, the founder of Frontier Nursing Service, looked for in her nurses, something that Mrs. Breckenridge called uh, the ability to enter a sick room, absorb all their fears, and transform them into confidence. Uh, we'll uh, hear more following this break. Fritz Kreisler played this concerto for years, saying it was a previously unknown piece by Vivaldi. A music writer for the New York Times suspected that was a yarn and asked Kreisler about it. The music and the true story behind this concerto on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. 
Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with author Marco Mowbray. We're talking about two of her books right now, An Answering Flame, uh, which is from the Journal of a Horseback Nurse Midwife. We're talking about the Frontier Nursing Service in Kentucky. And Margaret Mowbray's uh, Aunt Doris uh, worked for the Frontier Nursing Service for some six years. Later on, we'll get talking about a very interesting uh, book uh, set in World War II, uh, True History, Havoc Red, or based on True History, Havoc Red, Surviving the Alaska-Siberia Route, 1943. Uh, so Margot Mowbray, uh, by the way, uh, put a plug in here, our author Margot Mowbray, authormargomowbray.com is the, the website. People can, I guess, purchase these books on that website? Yes, you can. And uh, that way I can actually personalize the books. They're also available on Amazon, but uh, I don't uh, handle those, so I'm not able to uh, personalize them. Okay. Uh, so by the way, before we get to talking a little bit more about your aunt, uh, uh, Doris, uh, there's a picture uh, here on the back of the book, uh, a nurse with uh, two babies that uh, I presume she's delivered. I guess these are twins. Uh, one thing that stands out at me, uh, she's wearing uh, knee-height uh, boots. Well, that was the Frontier Nursing Service summer uniform. You're looking at it right there. It's a, a denim vest, white shirt, a man's tie, and uh, riding pants and tall riding boots. That's what the nurses wore in the summer. In the winter, they added a wool coat or a slicker that was split up the back so they could uh, ride horses uh, with the slicker on. And believe me, they needed those slickers. Uh, so why, why the boots? Well, uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, horseback riding uh, makes it a lot safer uh, when you're wearing boots. The other thing was snakes. That was sometimes their only defense against snakes. Some of these homes... Uh, they were crudely referred to as three rooms and a path, and uh, you needed your boots to make it to the privy, or sometimes uh, snakes ended up in the warm corners of the houses in the summertime. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting creeped out right now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, let's see, let me uh, read this again, uh, and I wanted to have you talk about your Aunt Doris. Uh, she had an enormous presence, you say, something Mrs. Breckenridge looked for in her nurses, something she called the ability to enter a sick room and absorb all their fears, transform them into confidence. I guess this is a presence that uh, Mrs. Breckenridge wanted in her nurses. She did. She was a very good judge of character, and uh, I imagine that cadre of nurses was a remarkable group of women. I know my aunt was. And back to the picture that you referred to on the back of the book, those indeed are twins that Doris delivered herself, and that is her there in her uh, probably late 20s. Uh, one interesting anecdote about Doris uh, that made this so worthwhile is when I was invited back to Lexington after I had won the media award from the American College of Nurse Midwives. There was a, a nice uh, celebration there, and afterwards there was a reception, and the room was full of people. And this woman walked up to me, uh, older than I, and she looked at me and she said, um, I knew your Aunt Doris. I said, oh, wonderful. Uh, how, how, how did you know her? She said, well, your Aunt Doris saved my mother's and my life. And I said, oh, tell me more. She said, I was a 13-pound baby, and my mother was having great difficulty delivering me, and 
Doris was the nurse uh, on call, and uh, my mother actually started going into convulsions, but Doris was able to deliver me safely and uh, saved both our lives. And um, believe me, that, that moment, uh, among several, uh, certainly made this whole uh, journey worthwhile for me. Yeah, it must be very gratifying. Um, so uh, you, you write a, a through line here, and it have an afterward talking about your Aunt Doris. Uh, she's six years or something in the, the Frontier Nursing Service. Uh, she, yes. She stayed in the medical field, right? She did. She stayed uh, as a, a nurse, became a community nurse back home in Michigan. Uh, that's when I met her. Of course, I, it would have been uh, when our family was uh, traveling back east to visit family. And we spent a lot of time with her at her charming little home there, a little rural home on uh, Highway 68. And there was always a big corn roast and fresh tomatoes and cucumbers from her garden. And when the phone rang, Doris often uh, excused herself and went and took care of somebody. Yeah, you say the, the line between on-duty and off-duty was blurred for her. <laughs> it was. I think Doris was always on duty. And she was honored in uh, Sheboygan by them naming a clinic after her. We uh, went to that celebration as well, and uh, it was very gratifying to see that she was commemorated in that way. I was very touched by, uh, you, I don't know if you, you know, would mind talking about this, uh, it's, you know, revealing too much or, or anything, uh, about her, um, the way she faced death. Yes, uh, I, I pointed out that she was ahead of her time. Uh, being a medical person, she uh, started developing some serious medical complications in her advanced age. And at about age 86, she faced the doctor and said, I want the truth. Uh, I've got uh, issues, uh, a blocked artery. Uh, she was actually starting to develop some cancer. Uh, and he said, well, we'll need to put you on an oxygen, uh, some, some enhanced breathing. And she said, well, what if you don't? He said, well, you may live six Six days, six minutes, six days, six hours. Uh, he said, I don't know how long you live, but uh, that would be the beginning of the end. So she deliberately sat down, uh, picked a date, wrote letters to all of her friends or called, and had everybody that she knew uh, aware of the fact that on a certain day she was going to have the uh, life-sustaining oxygen suspended from her and... Um, for that entire time, people came in and visited her, and sure enough, uh, when the time came, the oxygen was turned off, and uh, within six hours, she was gone. Hmm. Yeah, that, that just struck me. It sounds like a, a, quite the woman, an enormous presence uh, to the end. That uh, If you, you, know, you want to come and say goodbye, it has to be before this certain hour, because I'm, <laughs> I'm going, right? That, that's right. She didn't want to be a burden on anyone and didn't want her family to have to make that decision, so she yeah. made it uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the uh, back to Eastern Kentucky at these times. And I, I think we, you know, if you look back to your grandparents, great grandparents, wherever you live, you you probably, you know, your our ancestors lived these these times. But we tend to forget, I think. Um, so, for example, you write about uh, having to preserve meat with no refrigeration. Right. They'd butcher in the fall when the weather started to cool because they had no place to, uh, to chill the meat. Uh, they certainly got as much value out of their gardens as they could. They'd can everything that they could, uh, 
They chop up the what was left over and feed it to the hogs. Uh, they uh, would uh, plant sugar cane and make their molasses. Uh, the only thing they really needed to buy if they wanted it was coffee and flour and shoes for the kids. Most everything else, they were able to uh, resourcefully extract from their land and their hands. Mm. Uh, and you say the the only thing green uh, you could look forward to eating in the winter would be pickles. Exactly, they would take their cucumbers and pickle them, and that's what that's what they would exist on uh, in the winter until the spring green started to uh, grow out in the fields. The dandelion greens and and pope they called it. And we go to the supermarket in the middle of winter and you know <laughs> get whatever. I mean, there's some restrictions, but uh, you know, a pretty wide variety. Exactly, we live like kings. Uh, you have one chapter I was, uh, and then maybe you get you to tell, you know, a couple more stories here, um, whatever you'd like to choose. Uh, one chapter that struck me, uh, if I could find this, a mule named Tenacity. And I, it, it, it recalls, um, uh, to my mind, um, I went to, to visit an outfitter for to do a radio report. Um, and he was on the edge of the wilderness out in eastern Utah. And he'd, he'd take you up into the wilderness areas. He swore by mules. In fact, uh, there's a picture of me sitting on a mule, <laughs> c- kind of uncomfortably, looking very unnatural. Um, but, but he went on for half an hour um, uh, about how mules are so much better than horses. Well, and I have a story in here uh, by the horseshoer uh, that basically does the same thing. If you're loyal to mules, uh, you can. You can, you can. you can rhapsodize about them. And I have to say that tenacity is one of the... Uh, real uh, characters in this book. There truly was a tenacity. I did change the gender. Uh, I believe tenacity was uh, a male, and I changed it to a female, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the story was, was similar. That mule uh, basically worked himself to death uh, on behalf of, the, of his masters. Mm. Uh, before we um, uh, change gears to the other book, uh, any other stories from, from the life of your Aunt Doris or anybody else that you'd especially like to tell us? Well, I, I won't read it. It's a little lengthy, but one of the chapters deals with a true story uh, that was in my aunt's uh, journals about how the family treated a case of tuberculosis. They, of course, uh, the, the man came down with a bad, bad cough, and he tried drugstore medicines uh, until that didn't seem to help. Then they, uh, the family did ask for help from the frontier nurses, and by the time the nurse got out there to his place, the family had made a decision to quarantine the man, and they built a treehouse for him so he wouldn't infect the family. And uh, Doris saw the actual treehouse with a, a bucket on one branch for his food and a bucket on another branch for the slop, and she realized there really isn't much uh, I can do for this gentleman. And she heard uh, sawing and pounding and sawing and pounding and realized, um, I think they're building a coffin for this fellow right out in the, right out in the sunlight. And uh, that was about all the fellow needed. He told her he didn't need no medicine. He said, my brother Nick is uh, making, uh, making the only thing I need, miss, and thank you very much. And she went away uh, with a glimpse towards the family gravestone, gra- graveyard, up in the edge of the clearing with the little granite stones, uh, realized, okay, there will be another one of those before long, and the family just faces the situation like they would a, a flood or a, a grass fire. Hmm. 
Yeah, there, there's there's something poignant about that, but it, I guess a hard practicality that you just have to develop. Right. They didn't really have much other choice. They were smart enough not to uh, let it infect the others. Yeah. It was interesting. You asked about the conditions. Even in the 40s, they were dealing with 19th and 18th century disease. Uh, of course, uh, typhoid fever, diphtheria, uh, and, and tuberculosis, things that we thought we had eradicated here in the, in the U.S. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's so interesting that uh, you you'd, you'd kind of go back in time if, yeah, by distance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it was a fascinating book, An Answering Flame, and uh, the author Margaret Mowbray is with us. Uh, we're going to take a break, make a transition to another of her books, um, Havoc Red, Surviving the Alaska-Siberia Route. Uh, this is a true history of uh, World War II, the Lend-Lease Program, where uh, President Roosevelt uh, was trying to keep Joseph Stalin and the Russians uh, with the Allies. And uh, so thousands and thousands of planes were ferried from Great Falls, Montana, up to Fairbanks. Then Russian pilots would take over there and, and transport those to the Eastern Front. Um, some very interesting history, and we'll talk about that following this break. K-pop stars are products of fantasy world. On the next Radio Lab, we enter the multi-billion dollar image machine that is K-pop. The girl next door, all cute and, you know, like the ideal girlfriend kind of idea. It's a prison you decide to walk into. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Coming up next at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. On the next On Being for Mother's Day, nourishing the inner lives of our children and attending to our own inner lives for their sake. To create a new life that comes out with fingernails and eyelashes and all of all its fingers and toes, it's an amazing thing. And it's extremely awakening in the sense of knowing how vulnerable we are. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Sunday nights at 5 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Thompson Premier Lighting and Appliance for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. We would also like to thank our listeners and members. Remember, you can now listen and contribute on our new UPR app. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is author Margot Mowbray. You can find out more about her and uh, look at her books at authormargomowbray.com. Margot Mowbray uh, splits her time between Montana and St. George, Utah. We've been talking about an answering flame. It's about the Frontier Nursing Service. We make a transition now for the rest of the hour talking about uh, very interesting uh, of our other books, Havoc Red, Surviving the Alaska-Siberia Route, 1943. I'll just read a bit of the uh, publisher's blurb. The, when Russia was pushed to the brink uh, by Germany's war machine, President Franklin Roosevelt agreed to an uncomfortable alliance with Joseph Stalin and sent thousands of aircraft to the battered Soviet nation by way of the Alaska-Siberia Route. Lend-lease pilots braved blinding Arctic storms, primitive navigation, delivering planes to Fairbanks. Their Russian pilots flew them onto the uh, the Russian uh, front, the Eastern Front, rather. Uh, so this is a very interesting uh, history. And again, hadn't known anything about this. Uh, so originally, at the beginning of the war, um, Stalin and Hitler signed a non-aggression pact. But at a certain point, uh, Hitler invaded uh, Russia. 
And uh, this is an attempt by the U.S. government to secure this alliance, right? Uh, we'll, we'll lend least. We'll, we'll send you uh, aircraft. We'll send you weapons. Yes, exactly. When I first learned about lend lease to Russia, um, when a pilot friend and I landed at Watson Lake Yukon Territory in a four-seat Cessna, and there's this huge runway there in the middle of nowhere, I asked about it, and he explained that this was one of the many um, hurriedly built air- airports along this uh, Alaska-Siberia route during World War II, which fascinated me. And as I got into researching it more and more, I found a story that I thought needed to be told of the, the darker side of war. Yeah, it is a fascinating uh, fascinating history. Uh, so Lend-Lease, that's a euphemism, right? It's <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think we got anything back. I don't think we got anything back, no. And uh, this is, and you write uh, at the end of your book, you, uh, you hug the bear, you're going to get hurt. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit as we go along. Uh, but this is a this is again a fascinating group of people. The uh, I can't remember what the group is. The Seventh Ferry Unit. The, the Seventh Ferry Group, yes, and they uh, were based out of uh, Great Falls. Their uh, archives and oral histories are there at the Great Falls History Museum, where I started my research. Uh, eventually, my research took me from, of course, Great Falls to Fairbanks. I both flew and drove that route a couple of times to do research, and I eventually. Uh, went all the way to London to the Cabinet War Room, where Winston Churchill directed his war efforts in a basement compound across the uh, the Thames from the Parliament Building. Hmm. Um, I wonder if I get you to uh, to read a passage. This is from the introduction, Roman numeral uh, uh, fourteen, page Roman numeral fourteen. Um, this gives you a sense, gives us a sense, of what it was like to fly this route. This is, uh, for one thing, cold. It's up a very, very far north. Very cold, and they're very primitive. The the coffee pot on a kitchen counter probably gives more information to these to you than these pilots had. Mm. Um, you want me to be, begin with the pilots uh, and the, my story? Uh-huh, yeah, and just read that paragraph, yeah. The pilots in my story took off from Great Falls, a few miles from where the coldest temperature was ever recorded in the continental U.S., 70 below zero, what Jack London would call... 100 degrees of frost. From Great Falls, the young pilots flew north past the 64th parallel, a mere 108 nautical miles south of the Arctic Circle. At that latitude, most of Finland lies south of you. Suspended by thin aluminum wings full of aviation gasoline, pilots flew airplanes loaded with bombs, machine guns, and ammunition over ice as old as rocks, and mountains thrust a mile and a half high by a restless earth. Extreme cold changes the behavior of mechanical devices, not to mention human tissue. It reduces an antenna's range and can cause it to snap off at airspeed. To the pilots, it probably seemed as if the cold had frozen the very radio waves. From our moment in time, it's hard to imagine flying over a third of the North American continent with only a wavering magnetic compass and a few gyro instruments for guidance. There were hours of nothing but mountains flanking frozen lakes, black spruce and muskeg to cushion your crash if the wings iced up or if your engine seized when its oil gelled in the extreme cold. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, you, you say you've flown this route? I have, in, in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. Um, is it, I guess more modern plane, I imagine you were piloting. Uh, yeah, with, with uh, another pilot, it was... Uh, 
pretty luxurious trip compared. You know, we had places to stop and meals to eat and uh, uh, wonderful places to camp. So it, it's hard to compare what it would have been like. Um, there's a uh, picture on the trailer that I use uh, as a promotion that shows a fellow in a 55-gallon drum, and that was the uh, the bathtub uh, at one of the airports along the way for these pilots. On the back of the book here, there's a plane that's uh, that's crashed. Were there... Did they lose planes? Did they lose pilots? They did, and I've got those statistics here. Um, out of the, this is just the uh, Lend-Lease Alcib de- deliveries. There were seven thousand nine hundred and twenty-five total. They lost. I've got that right here. They lost uh, seventy-four within U.S. border, within Canada and Alaska. They lost fifty-nine for a total of one hundred and thirty-three which is 1.65% if you do the math. And I think that's remarkably low hmm. considering the conditions. Yeah, yeah. Now this route, I mean, if, if you crash, I, <laughs> I don't know, it's survive that. The cold's going to get you, I imagine? Well, cold or wildlife, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes they couldn't send out a spotter because the weather maybe was what brought the airplane down. So... They'd wait till the weather cleared. They send out a spotter, try to find uh, the pilot, uh, and um, sometimes they actually had to retrieve the pilot by dog sled. What they would typically try to do if it was in the winter, uh, they'd land on a frozen lake, which was a surface they could rely on, and the pilot would have to make his way to the lake. So it was uh, your your chances were pretty grim if you did go down. Hmm. And uh, there are several of those anecdotes in the book. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me about your, uh, you, you've, um, you've got a couple of characters here. Frank Dugan, uh, tell me a little yes. bit about him. Yes, main character Frank Dugan. He seems to have good reasons to make bad decisions, trying to overcome his, uh, his regrettable past. The other main character is a 20-something pilot, Lieutenant Daniel Stanhope. He's also overcoming his past, the death of his disabled younger brother, and he's trying to live up to his father's heroism during World War One. And uh, Dugan ends up in Montana State Prison, but when, and I found uh, this fact in one of my uh, newspapers I researched, when so many men enlisted after the Pearl Harbor attack, a lot of prisoners were released to work as civilian laborers, and so that's what Dugan ends up doing. He's assigned to work uh, as a civilian at Gore Field in uh, Great Falls. Hmm. But naturally, he's bored. He wants to be in the war, not just uh, yielding a, a putty knife, you know, at the in the facility. So when a Russian officer approaches him with a deal to participate in a very important war task, he agrees to deliver special cargo uh, to another Russian in Fairbanks. Interesting. Uh, by the way, these the men that were released, were they sent back to prison afterwards? Did they... Uh... Most of them were paroles. They were mm-hmm. uh, they were pretty selective about who they let out, okay. naturally. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they were uh, considered, uh, had to have served their time, and uh, the letter that I found um, that the inmates wrote is actually in the book. They made a very... Uh, honorable plea saying we we understand the importance of freedom and we'd rather serve our country than waste away here in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, you, you made reference to special cargo. These were the planes, but also armaments, uh, other things. Oh, yes. Um, naturally, um, 
Stalin made a lot of uh, very outrageous demands on on the on the U.S. and a lot of things started going uh, that direction in cases marked uh, diplomatic immunity, and they were immune from search. So a lot of things uh, just got loaded. A lot of it was just simply black market stuff, things that the Russians craved, fragrances and lingerie and uh, American whiskeys and things. But pretty soon uh, the suspicions were that some of these things were probably related to top-secret military things, and uh, Dugan ends up uh, getting trapped in that that uh, enterprise. Uh, including, you know, it's a, I don't know if you talk to people who suspect that very high-level uh, intelligence was was perhaps passed. Well, yes. Uh, the uh, in my introduction, I point out that it it is fact that Roosevelt and Hopkins were so desperate to keep Stalin loyal that they delivered over ten billion dollars worth of war material to the Soviets. But this material that was immune from search. Uh, there have been allegations of serious breaches in national security, including the Manhattan Project. Hmm. And what I say in my introduction is that what follows is fiction, but some would say the only fabrications are a few of the players' names. And uh, do the people that make this allegation, is there evidence or suspicion? Well, there is. Uh, I did a lot of research. One of the books that was quite intriguing was called Major Jordan's Diaries, and I uh, it was it was published originally by, I believe, Harcourt Brace, so it was published by a, a legitimate publishing company, and he claims he was an expediter in Newark, New Jersey, dealing with Lend-Lease going across the Atlantic, and he claims that he saw uh, terms like plutonium and uh, heavy water and uh, things that he didn't understand at the time, but later realized they probably had something to do with with uh, nuclear armaments and uh, things like um, maps of the U.S. railroads and uh, essential factories, locations, and things. He, he blew the whistle after he uh, became alarmed and basically sacrificed his military career to uh, bring this to the attention of the authorities. What, uh, what do you think? Do you, you, do you draw a conclusion? <laughs> Good question. Um, I do think that a lot of things went through. I think Harry Hopkins was basically hoodwinked by Stalin. I think he had socialist tendencies and started to uh, empathize with Stalin. Uh, I have a chapter in there that describes his meeting with Stalin and how he really was uh, pretty captivated by the man. The man was very forceful and very duplicitous. And uh, I believe that there's a strong possibility that uh, Hopkins... uh, made deals that probably uh, we would regret now. Hmm. I think most of us could agree that uh, the Uncle Joe image that uh, was cultivated was, uh, of course, not true. Um, there's a, you, you quote uh, Stalin in the book, uh, the, the death of one man is a tragedy, death of millions is a statistic. Yes. And uh, on, the one, on the one hand, Stalin, you know, a lot of blood on his hands, uh, you know, killing, starving his own people. Uh, on, I guess on the other side, uh, Russia... Soviet Union did absorb uh, a lot of what the Soviet the Nazis uh, had to had to throw right millions uh, yes. millions millions died in that uh, war as high as twenty eight million yes it was extremely expensive to the Russians and without them 
uh, the uh, the outcome of World War II may have been very very different. So we do we do have a debt there, and perhaps that might have been part of the motivation. Um, another a quote by Stalin. While we're on that topic, he says, "I know gratitude quote very well. It is a sickness suffered by dogs." Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's it, it draws character of the man in part at least. Um, so, and you draw a line uh, later in the book, um, your experience, experience that I've had as well, uh, the, you know, the, the, the drills, you know, simulating a nuclear strike, get onto your desk, oh, yes. which is if you well, look, yes. you look back on that, you think, what was that going to do? But anyway. Yeah, it, it actually, back to the original surprise I had writing the book was uh, that we had been allied with Russia. As you know, you're probably about my age. We did practice the uh, atom bomb drills, and so Russia always uh, was our enemy. And uh, we walked past fallout shelter signs, and, uh, you know, in my neighborhood there was a Nike missile site. The missile was right there in the neighborhood, pointed at the sky, and... Uh, when I found out we had allied with uh, Russia during World War II, it, it did it did surprise me. It was intriguing to me. You talk about how that on a, an entire generation that uh, had an effect had to have had an effect on our psyche, I guess. Well, absolutely. I think I mentioned that at the end of the book that uh, we absorbed it and it became part of us. Yeah. Um, just we have maybe a couple minutes left. You have a. A personal connection. Your grandmother, you said, worked at a aircraft factory. <laughs> she did. She wired B seventeens for Boeing in Seattle. She was a milliner. Milliner. milliner she was. She was a hat maker, hat and maker, like I yeah. said, hats were going out of style, and she wanted to do her part. So she uh, got on the bus in the morning and went to the Boeing factory, and basically was a Rosie the Riveter. Only she was a. Uh, she had a soldering gun and would wire B seventeens. So after the war, she went back home. What what happened? Oh, she just lived in Seattle and mm-hmm. uh, you know re- returned to basically a peaceful civilian life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a whole interesting cultural shift, wasn't it? Uh, many many women went to work. Then I guess they were expected to go back home, but uh, I could think that produced a cultural shift later on. Yeah, correct. Um, baby boom as a result of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, are there any, maybe a, a parting shot, at any stories that stand out to you from your research for Havoc Red? Well, I guess uh, the depth of research, I really did uh, understand a lot more about World War II, and definitely uh, two things. I was reminded of the ephemeral nature of these stories, as I tracked down anecdotes and facts, I felt like I was arriving almost too late. The authors of some of the works I tracked down had recently passed away. You know, even the youngest who fibbed about their age to enlist after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor were in their mid-80s. I did get to meet and became good friends with a pilot who had flown the P-39, which is a main character in my book, The Aircraft. That was fascinating. He's, he's now gone. Um, the other point I'd like to make, and it's a terrible understatement, but as I uh, researched the European situation, I realized how fortunate I am to be here. I could, my imagination could take me either I could drive or fly any place I wanted for research. There were no checkpoints, no border crossings to worry about. 
uh, I had uh, complete freedom and, uh, you know, what an understatement to say that we live in a free country and are very, very fortunate. Yeah, that's uh, certainly, certainly true. Well, we've reached the end of our hour with uh, Margaret Mowbray. Um, we've talked about two of her books, Havoc Red, Surviving the Alaska-Siberia Route, 1943, and, and Answering Flame, subtitled There is Horseback Nurse in an Adverse Land. You can find out more about uh, Margot Mowbray in these books at authormargomowbray.com. Margot Mowbray, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you and your listeners and UPR supporters uh, for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This week on This American Life. So human beings have spines. And when it comes to the animal kingdom, you know what we study? Mostly other creatures with spines. Know who's not into that? Scientists who study spiders and worms and snails and other creatures who have no spines. And then... One of the scientists who studies these spineless creatures gets a spine and stands up to the powers that be. Saturday morning at 11 here on UPR. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. In Stockton, Utah, mothers still tell their daughters to be home before the midnight train goes by or Charlie Ping won't get them. Who is Charlie Ping? Years ago, Charlie fell in front of a train and got his head cut off. They say Charlie is still out there looking for his head, and if he finds you, he'll take yours. For more stories from Utah's railroading past, join us Friday, May 10th at 10 a.m. and Saturday, May 11th at 3 p.m. on UPR's Ride the Rails.